Hey everyone, it's Maurice. If you've been listening to the show and you like what you hear, you can become a patron of Revision Path today. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and you can join at the $5 level to get behind the scenes exclusive access on upcoming interviews, new articles, and episodes of our special patrons only podcast. Join at the new $20 level and you'll get everything at the $5 level plus a free Revision Path logo enamel pin plus a swag pack full of goodies. So check it out today, patreon.com forward slash revision path. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. One thing that I love asking guests on the show is what advice they would give to an up-and-coming designer. When I talked with UX researcher Becca Hare, I asked her what's the best advice she's been given about design. I think listen first and problem solve later. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to hire someone for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Glitch is looking for a full stack engineer, as well as a customer success engineer. These positions are for their New York City office, but remote candidates are welcome to apply. If you're looking to diversify your design or dev teams, post your job listing with us. For just $99, your job listings will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you through our podcast and our weekly job alerts. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting edge VR experiences, smart bots, useful tools to solve problems at work, apps that help advance important causes, there's games, I mean, you name it. People have built over a million projects on Glitch for you to discover, and new ones are popping up every single day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on making something awesome today at glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, MailChimp may have started out just doing email. I mean, it's it's in their name, MailChimp. But now you can use it for Facebook ads. You can use it for Instagram ads. There's really powerful automations and a whole lot more. Think of it more like a marketing powerhouse. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp, send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're closing out our LGBTQ month with artist Jared Key. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Jared Key. I am an artist. Now, Jared, when we first started talking, you know, just now before recording, you mentioned that you're currently at RISD. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I'm at Rhode Island School of Design pursuing my MFA in painting, which has been really cool because what does painting even mean now? (laughs) And so (laughs) painting means a lot of things. It means actually using my body to make marks on a large canvas. It means oil painting, but it also means sculpture and object making and storytelling. And so a lot of my work is not only narratively driven, but also historically based. It's historically based. And also mm-hmm. about the oral history of my family. Now, you initially were in Providence a few years back. You went to Brown University. What's it like being back there now? You know, the first two weeks that I got back to Providence, I was sort of shook. Because I was like, wow, <laughs> everything is different, but everything is the same. I'm not in New York City anymore. So everyone here, not everyone is wearing all black. 
<laughs> and so it was sort of a big adjustment. But now that it's about four weeks into school, things I've sort of settled into my studio and it feels really good to be back. It's a really quiet place to focus. And that's sort of the thing that I was missing in New York City with all the distractions of, you know, paying for a really high rent, trying to like stay on top of meeting people, making work happen, going through the gallery shows, doing everything. I really just needed a really important, focused studio space for myself so I can think and process work. And I'm definitely getting that. It's sort of interesting, though. Providence is clearly not as diverse as New York City. And RISD is definitely not as diverse. Any program that I've been in or the network that I'm used to hanging out with in New York. And so I really do miss my QT pop for trans people of color community. I miss hanging out with black people. There's not any other black people in my program. Oh, um, wow. You black people. There's probably four black people across the entire MFA program at RISD. And so that's a little bit jarring. So I'm, the thing that I feel like I'm missing having conversations with my art with people that look like me. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a really big challenge. But outside of that, it's been nice to just have my own space to, you know, fail, really. I really am just here to take risks and try new things and push the things I've already done and hopefully learn some new skills like welding. I'm already welding. So oh, nice. Welding and forging steel and doing some clay work and pushing my oil painting practice so it's been really cool i'm really enjoying it speaking of i guess taking those risks what made you decide to go back to get your mfa yeah so my art process and practice in new york city for the last four years has been pretty robust but i think the thing that i was missing is like i was like i need to learn how to like actually weld something because i want to make a bronze cast statue and i don't want to have to just like make the the mold and sit it out i really want to learn how to make that and so the need for wanting to learn technical new skills and to focus on craft are the thing are the reasons why i'm here and it's also nice just to be in an academic studio setting to talk about the history of painting and becoming a student of painting because being a painter is understanding all the references that have happened before you and how you as a person can provide a clear singular perspective that stands out. And so I think I'm here to like deepen what I already understand and expand the skills that I have. So what is kind of your experience been like in general in the art community? I would imagine, as you've just said, there's a big difference between New York and Providence. But I guess as you've started as an artist, what's your experience been like? I think the one thing that I would say about art, regardless of where you are, is that you can't do it by yourself. And so even if I'm carrying a wet painting to the framers to get ready for a show, I need a hand. And in New York, I had such a strong community of people there to support me with actually moving something, giving me ideas or giving me reflections and ideas about what I am working on, and also putting me in touch with other people that could be influential in terms of my process and and my art making. So Codify Art is an art organization that four or five of us started, Ron Brown and Rizzi students started about five years ago when we moved to the city in order to support us making work. Because we realized we came to the city not knowing anyone, not knowing how anything worked. And we was like, well, we know each other. We respect each other. We think that we're smart. We think that we can support each other. And that's how it all got started. And so having that small community that has since then grown to affiliation with hundreds of artists has really been the defining moment of my New York experience. And through that work with Codify Art, I really have had opportunities to curate, to meet people in the art, quote-unquote, art industry, to build momentum behind individual projects that reflect each other so that we can sort of elevate and push all of us to get noticed. And that's been really important. I think the art industry, the art field, the art landscape in New York can feel very exclusive. And so for me, having a group of people and busting it open for ourselves was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in school and away from that, I realize how influential and how important having that pressure, having that community, having that momentum has been in terms of my own ideas, in terms of keeping my checking myself and the things that I care about have been I'm sort of I'm missing that I'm missing my crew I'm missing (laughs) crew. you know I'm missing the people that might be up at 2 a.m with me while I'm like trying to finish this painting I'm like do you like this 
Like, is this confusing? Like, I'm missing that. And I think here, I will get it. I will find my people. It's been a little transition of a moment. How are you coping with it? I think okay. I am really lucky because my roommate of five years, actually someone who also started codify art with me, also got into Rizzi at the same time. Okay. My roommate's in Kit. And so they're doing graphic design here in the MFA program. And so I have at least one person here who understands where I've been, who understands the growth that I've made in the last four years, and who knows what my particular ambition is for this program. And so that's been really amazing. And it helps making this transition a little bit easier. I think in general, like just getting used to like new voices is the Mm -hmm. hardest thing, right? So suddenly I'm dealing with professors who are 40 years older than me, who are like important artists in their own right, and having them talk about the work without them actually having the context about my work Mm. has been interesting. Because it's kind of confusing. It's like, how are you going to talk to me about this, this particular painting? You really don't even know what the history of all this work has culminated into. And so that's interesting, right? Because then the eyes that you get on it are new and the impressions that you get on it are fresh. And so trying to balance these new, fresh impressions that may or may not hit the mark in terms of what I'm trying to achieve has been tricky. But it's important. And that's sort of why I'm here. Right. I mean, you're there. I mean, not just to learn more of these technical skills, but also to kind of get more in tune with, I guess, what's not necessarily what's new and what's coming out. But like like you said, with these new voices that can engage with your work in a different way. Right. And so it's allowing me to really get a fuller perspective about what my work is communicating and how it's communicating it and what are things that are really successful and what are things that are weaker that need to be more defined and more specific. So, because, you know, when your friends look at your work and they know everything, it's really easy for them to say, oh, yeah, I get that, I get that, I get that. <laughs> Versus, like, you know, a stranger, and they're like, well, I get it, but, like, do I need more context than this? Yeah. yeah. And so that's sort of interesting. So that's sort of been interesting. But, you know, I'm, like, running around the city trying to find <laughs> black people to come talk to me about my work. I'm mm-hmm. trying to also just be patient with myself. Because this whole grad school thing is new for me, and, and I'm just excited to push it and, and, and be uncomfortable and be okay with being uncomfortable and being okay with being frustrated and being okay with also just being, like, freaking pumped and amped yeah. and ecstatic and also trying to be as authentic as I can with these people. I think it's so easy to, like, show up to a new place, particularly when you might feel estranged and try to pretend to be someone that I'm not. But I'm not trying to do that. I think really my only main goal is like, well, Jerry, you know who you are. So show up, turn out, and turn up. Yeah. And see what happens. And let these people actually interact with who you are so that when they are giving you feedback, when they're trying to connect with you, it's real. And it doesn't feel like we're all performing to just please. I'm not here to please anyone. I'm here to just learn something and take care of the things that I want for myself. Grad school is a crazy place because, you know, it can feel so indulgent. Like, I'm here to paint for two years. But it's important. And I'm trying to give myself the permission to relax and understand that, yes, this might be a little indulgent moment, but it will pay off. And and the skills that I learned here, I can contribute and give back to my community. What are some of the projects that you're working on right now? I am currently in a sculpture class where I'm basically making, I have like a two and a half foot long steel pipe that I'm forging and flattening out to make a hot comb that will sort of have some bends and gestural shape to it. The hot comb for me is an interesting object because my grandmother used Ruth May Giles used a hot comb to straighten her hair every day or every or however often she did and every time she did it I thought it was just so intense and crazy. Because it's like, wow, Grandma, you're just putting that on the stove and like you're pulling it in, and now you're at a gas stove and now you're just like using it to straighten your hair. She did this for her whole life. And so thinking about the history of the hot comb and how complicated it is for Black people in terms of the like politics regarding hair and the performance of that is really interesting. I myself use a hot comb when I'm doing this hair painting process to straighten it, to make it, to transform myself from the artist into the tool 
that she used to create these 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 pieces, these hair painting pieces. And so the hot comb for me, it just seems like such an iconic object when I talk about my grandmother, because it was just so, it was just something that felt like a staple to, to what created her presentation, what created her performance, which created her beauty and the way that she kept herself. And so I'm sort of making this object and that's really, and it's really cool because I've never sat in a foundry before and banged steel. I found out <laughs> years ago that my grandfather on my dad's side of the family was worked in the Columbus foundry. And it's just like, oh, wow. It's just like, look at, all, look, you know, and now I'm there sort of performing those same gestures. And so it's just been a really interesting way for me to not only think about my family and the history of my family, but also create new things and keep this sort of, I don't know, the labor and the performance of these gestures alive. There's something about bodily memory. There's something about the way that movement and ideas and values get passed along so that when you pick up an object that may feel unfamiliar to you, there can be some kind of home there. There can be some kind of understanding and comfort there. And also, you know, when you're frustrated, banging a piece of steel for two and a half hours will definitely feel <laughs> better. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, so that's one of the projects I'm working on. I'm also doing, I'm making some hair paintings here. I'm sort of pushing that process along, trying to incorporate or synthesize really other big series of work into the hair painting process. So two days ago, I did a painting, an oil painting, and um, that basically involves a lot of type and a repetition of the word I am. And then I let that dry and I did a hair painting on top of that. So I'm interested about what am I concealing? What am I revealing by covering up the words? And what do I lose and what do I get from it? So I'm just sort of trying to experiment and play. I'm also doing a series of like plaster reliefs with exclamation marks. I use an exclamation mark a lot in my oil paintings as a stand-in for the black body, thinking about full range of human expression. Because, you know, an exclamation mark, when you send it in a text message, it can be excited, it can be angry, it can be sad, it can be joyful, it can be ecstatic, it can be so many things. Mm -hmm. And like that, that complexity of a form, I think is so relevant to the way that the human experience and condition is. And so I'm using that as a sort of a stand-in as a form. And so I just did a relief for a class of a sculpture. And that's interesting. So I'm excited to see what that work does, too. You know, all along the way, I'm like writing some music. I'm also doing some personal writing for myself. And I'm doing a lot of fast, quick paintings just to see what my hand wants to make. Some improvisatory pieces. It certainly sounds like you're keeping busy. I know. It's kind of crazy. Just like... <laughs> Also, I was so lucky because I walked. So when I was in New York, I worked in my Brooklyn apartment. Mm -hmm. And so I had, it was a two bedroom, two bathroom apartment that I um, shared with only one other person. We had a back room that was essentially a guest room, but it couldn't actually be considered a guest room because it didn't actually have heating. And so we just sort of used that as a studio. And I had this like, I mean, I don't know, probably 25, 40 foot long hallway that I was working in. So I honestly was used to having basically a full house to work in, you know, yeah. found and make a mess in. And so when I came to, when I was coming to RISD, I was sort of concerned that the studio space that I was going to get was not going to be big enough because I tend to work pretty big too. The work is like pretty much like five to seven feet big, you know? And I was like, oh no, I'm going to have this like little small cube and I'm not going to know what to do. But I walked in to my studio and I realized that my teachers assigned me the largest studio out of everyone in my cohort. Like it's twice the size of everyone else's studio. Wow. And I feel so blessed because I'm like, wow, I actually do have the space to have all these projects going on because they all inform each other. And I'm not sort of that person that's just going to work on one thing and be like, okay, that one thing is perfect and done. Okay, I'm good. No, my process is way more interdisciplinary than that. Like me doing this relief sculpture of this exclamation mark is now informing what I'm going to do next for this oil painting that I'm doing. And then, okay, I'm like, and then I'm making connections with the next project that I'm doing. And so then I can just stand up in my studio, turn around, and I'm inspiring myself. And that's yeah. sort of really important. Letting the work generate new work and actually having the time to let, to, and the process to let each piece inform each other and I can go back into work and I can go back into this piece. I can go back into another piece. 
so when did you first realize that your art could be something that could, you know, start a conversation or affect change? I think, I mean, I can think of like being a kid and being a part of like, and taking theater classes and realizing like, oh man, like learning how to like stand up in front of t- and talk to someone is a big important skill. And I learned that, but I feel like the first time it really all landed together for me was in, in college at Brown. It was a group of, of like the people of color students. And we were kind of peeved about the lack of roles for us at school. And so we all got together and we decided that we were going to put up our own show. And so we called it T-Pac in the Upspace because the Upspace was like a student-run theater that the students had access to. And it was going to be probably one of the first times where like, at least since I was at Brown, where like the students got together to like do something that was for us, by us, and about us. And doing that was amazing because it not only like gave us agency to make decisions about how we wanted to represent ourselves, but it also gave us agency about the kinds of stories we wanted to put our bodies in. And since that moment, it was just an eye-opening moment for us. It was just such an eye-opening moment for us because everyone has a job and we're working together to make this beautiful story to come alive. And yeah, and I think the community at Brown was so excited and energized by that. And that the following year, it was just like, of course we have to like, of course we have to do Lydia Diamond now. Of course we have to do August Wilson now. Of course we have to do all these important playwrights because the community here is hungry for it and we need it. And so that was, and at that moment I realized, oh wait, just by the fact that we put this work up because it was important to us, it changed the landscape about how people were even thinking about the role of people of color in the theater department. And that was amazing and important. And so since then, actually, that sort of calling together forces is really what led to Codify Art. Because we all graduated school and was like, wow, y'all remember when we put up that play together? Y'all remember how important and moving that was? You remember how many people we got to galvanize and get in one room together to be creative, to have the conversations that we have been meaning to have, the things that frustrated us about the industry, the things that frustrated us about the roles that we were getting. And that was an important space. And mm-hmm. more importantly, it let it highlighted like, oh, suddenly, oh, wait, you really like stage managing. Here's an opportunity. Oh, you really like directing. Here's an opportunity. Oh, you really want to play violin and you really want to play this really specific thing? Cool, let's do that. And it gave us a way to give our community something, to give our community exactly what they wanted. And so because of that, Codify Art sort of spurred out of that same sort of ambition and, and momentum by saying, we, we have skills, we have stories that we want to share. Let's get together and let's share those stories. And then as we keep widening our audience, we'll get more people into the space and into room and into the conversation that may look like us, that may not look like us, that may agree with us, that may not agree with us. And that sort of dialogue is the role of art in general. And so for us to have a place in that conversation and for us to, to pull our own seat up to the table and not wait for permission from anyone to do it was really important. And that is sort of the thing that has stuck with me the most. If you want something, go out and take it and then bring your friends with you and then open the door (laughs) for more people so that suddenly the space is full. The space is full of people that you love, people that you don't know, people that, but people that are willing to actually participate in a conversation, in a dialogue to create change. That's sort of what, that's sort of what it was. I feel like we're definitely seeing a lot of that in like, like film and TV right now where you have like certainly this cohort of, of black creators that are coming up and they're bringing, you know, their friends with them and people that they've worked with. So like you've got someone like an Issa Rae or Alina Waith or Justin Simeon and they're bringing, you know, these actors and these other people that they've worked with right along with them. And everybody, everybody's eaten, you know, everybody is, is has a chance to have a, an opportunity to work, you know? And that's important because, you know, I feel like historically people often feel like, and this is across industries, just not in art, that it was like a, you know, a club. It was like a good old boys club. And it was like for centuries, people were just bringing, tapping their friend and then they were like, and then, and also their white friend. And, and suddenly that's why the environment kept being that way. But now I think that we are all just saying, wait, but I don't have to, I don't have to wait for an opportunity. 
there's no waiting. I want to do it. Let's just do it. I have yeah. people that can do this with me. And we're smart. We can figure out how to get some money. We can do this. And I think that's so important because suddenly we're like, we're breaking open the club. It's no longer a club. It's just a field. It's a wide open field and it has space for everyone. And it has space for all of the stories that we need to tell versus like, you know, trying to keep it exclusive because that doesn't help anyone. Right. How would you describe your personal art style? I mean, we've, uh, for people that are listening, will you know, you'll have a chance to kind of see what your, your hair paintings and everything are about. But when you think about all the different types of work that you're doing, how would you describe your style? Like, who are some of the people that influence you? I think that's where I am in school right now. is trying to get that to be a more specific, to have a more specific, that's to kind of talk about that. I think, like, to immediately respond to, like, who are my inspirations? Lynn Ligon, Kara Walker, Adam Pendleton. E.J. Hill, these artists that are using narrative, their body, their labor, in order to comment on historical conditions, but in contemporary circumstances. And so I think for me, I used to think about my work as sort of minimalist. I really like having like a very clean object in a neutral space so that that object can be focused on without distraction in terms of like commenting on legibility and accessibility um, and also sort of commodification. I think now the work is becoming a lot much, a lot more gestural and performative. Even if I'm doing an oil painting, it's like I'm taking my entire body and I'm like using, I'm starting bending my knees and I'm pulling the paint all the way up to six feet tall and then running across the canvas to make a gesture. And so I think at this point, it's someplace between, I don't know, perform, like a performance and gesture and sort of, I don't know, maybe abstract expressionism. It's, I don't know, it's someplace in there. It's someplace in that world. It's, the work is sort of, I, I think I'm really making so much work because I'm trying to nail down and expand exactly the way that I want people to identify me as. I think in general, if I had to talk about like big sort of, I don't know, not themes, but ways that I think about my work, the values that I have in my work, I think labor is number one on the list. Mm-hmm. thinking about actually like me taking the three hours to continuously bang that steel pipe down in order to get it flat enough so that I can then cut it with the bandsaw, then put it back into the foundry, the forge and bang it some more so I can get all the curves in it. Same thing with the hair painting process. Me, I, I make everything. I sew my overalls. I make my score that I dance to. The performance itself is quite physical. I choreograph my own gestures. And I use those things in order to sort of culminate in a larger, in a larger sort of oeuvre over of work in the same way with repetition. Like I do a lot of things where I will repeat an icon, an object, a word several times and have those layers build upon each other to cascade from, to cascade from light to dark, but to actually make that value happen simply by repetition, not by layering, not by just painting a big section black. It's actually, no, that's 250 IMs that created that black void that you see. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about how time, duration, and labor, and layering all come together to form compositions and objects. Was creativity a big part of your childhood? It sounds like this, This, I mean, when I hear you speak about this, it sounds like something that has been a part of you forever. That's so, I mean... I, I really guess so. Growing up, John and I, you know, we played sports, we played baseball, we played basketball, we did some swimming, we did track and cross country. And so there was that. But we also were kids that played music. Recorder, you know, in first grade, they hand you a recorder and they're like, mm-hmm. all right, we're just going to like make some sound. And I just love music. And so I learned how to play piano. That was my first major instrument. And then soon after that, I learned to play flute. And so the sort of musical, the sort of creative energy surrounding music was such an important part of me. And then I went to, um, then I got a little bit older and started doing theater and started acting and dancing and singing. I went to Brown thinking I was going to be an opera singer until I realized that I didn't want to necessarily pursue that industry in general <laughs> okay. for a lot of reasons. And then all along the way, I was writing and painting and drawing. And so... I don't know. I, my parents, my parents definitely 
supported. It, it was my mom used to have me and my brother used to sit at the kitchen table growing up, and my mom used to pull out like an old Christmas mat, like a Christmas table cover mat, and we used to do arts and crafts on the table for hours in the kitchen. And it was just like unsupervised, chill fun in the summer, you know. And and having and my parents having the space for us to like just like make something. It doesn't have to be good, it doesn't have to be bad, but just to sit and think about something and pursue it and come up with my own ideas and use my imagination to produce an object was a big part of my childhood. I'm really lucky. Like my dad is a carpenter. He builds houses for a living. And watching, as a kid, watch, like, you know, being on the job site, I worked with my dad basically from when I was a kid until I went to school. And being on the job site and watching my dad, like, take something that was on paper and use his hands to make a three-dimensional structure blew my mind. But I really didn't appreciate that until I went away to Brown and came back and realized, oh, wait, this thing that was just what I grew up with, my dad builds houses. Mm-hmm. I never realized like what actually that meant. My dad's an artist. My dad is making people's dreams come true, making something that doesn't exist exist. And that's amazing and inspiring. In the same way, my mom is my mom is a project manager at TSIS. But growing up, we stumbled upon probably when I was around eight or nine years old, we were probably doing some cleaning out of my mom's closet, you know, throwing away old stuff. And we stumbled upon a sketchbook. And so we opened the sketchbook. And there are beautiful rendered graphite drawings in the sketchbook. And we turned to my, and it's huge. And it's like 18 by 24. Mm-hmm. And we turned to my mom and we're like, mom, who did these drawings? They're amazing. And my mom was like, oh, y'all like them? Oh, I did them. <laughs> you know? And it's just like, what? Are you serious? Like, you are low key up in here rendering perfectly. And I was just like, I just was shook. And so last year, I was thinking about the sketchbook and I called my mom and I was like, Hey mom, you remember that sketchbook? And she was like, Oh yeah. I was like, is that the only sketchbook you have? Like, did you draw before that? Like, what was the deal? She was like, you know, I was just 23, 24. It's before y'all were born. And I just like got that sketchbook and I would just draw in it sometimes. That's the only sketchbook I've ever owned. And I was like, mom, are you serious? You just picked up a pencil and you created this beautiful, well, these are beautiful drawings. What? And so I think there's something there. I just think there's something about these two individuals who are both creative in their own right. And they're fostering the space for us to try things, to fail, to make objects come, appear out of nothing. Mm-hmm. That sort of imagination is what really, I think, is sticking with me and has, and has really formed the person I am today and, and, and the reason why I make art. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, aside from your family being a, a big inspiration is that it's also kind of even went into your work in terms of how you do your work. Like with the hair painting, uh, we were talking before you mentioned that your, your grandmother told you that your hair was your strength. And so you straighten your hair and you sort of use that as the brush for the canvas when you're doing these paintings. It sounds, I mean, it just sounds like to me, like family's just a big part of, of your identity as an artist. Yeah, I think it's true. It's interesting because I mentioned earlier, you know, we all have a story to tell. Yeah. And we all, and sharing that story, I think when each, when each person actually gets the story heard from someone else, the world gets closer. Society gets more equitable. People start to have more agency and more empathy for each other. And so, and my family instilled that in me. And I think that, you know, I just don't know what I would do without them. I think like, I like many people. So how do I share that? How do I share that with people? How do I share that love? How do I share those values and lessons? And art is doing that for me. My grandmother, Ruth Mage House, I don't know. She was just such a, such a force. She got married at 13 years old and she had 10 kids and seven survived. And wow. so she was a matriarch, mm-hmm. you know, a matriarch who didn't take any excuses from anyone. And it's sort of amazing how that strain burned into the bones of the way that the family can see it themselves, you know? And so, I don't know. I just am so inspired by them. And I'm so inspired by the things that they have taught me and share with me. And I just, I just want to keep sharing it. 
I think that also is specific, you know? Like, when I'm, at, I'm at RISD, or even when I was in New York City, they're just, how many black queer twins do you know from Alabama who are both painters? You know? <laughs> like, what is that? Like, who, yeah. who, like who, who is that? And I feel like that's particular, that's specific. And I'm just excited to be here and to be doing this work. What do you think people get wrong about art? I think that people assume that there's one right way to do something. I think that, you know, like some people like use their own taste as a metric for what is good or what is bad. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's complicated. I feel like obviously, you know, I like broccoli, you don't like broccoli, but that doesn't mean broccoli is bad, right? Or bad for you. Right. Or that it's not worth it or it has no value. We all know that broccoli has value. And I think similarly with art, there are so many various forms of expression. And while that form of expression might not be your cup of tea, it could be someone else's jam. I think that also art is so specific in terms of the kind of ways that symbols or experience or marks get interpreted. They can be so specific regionally, culturally, socially, economically, class-based. And so oftentimes it's like when people talk about art that they don't like, it's like, what is the thing that's keeping you from appreciating what is happening? Yeah, some, you know, I don't like everything either, right? Mm -hmm. We don't always like everything, but appreciating the value of it and what that contributes to a conversation is important. And I think that is the thing that people often misunderstand about the role of art. I think that also people talk about, you know, there's always a discussion between art and design. Like design has value and art has no value. And I think that's complicated. Mm. I think that art does have value. I think that art as an object has value. Something that I remember in school at Brown that was always said is like, for example, with theater. Theater shows us, theater shows us who we are and how we are. And I think that art does the same thing. It shows us who we were and how we are now. It actually tracks the history of the ways that we see ourselves. And that has value because if we don't have this, this process, this community, this industry of cultural production, what are we left with? What are we humans left with that we have nothing that actually celebrates or archives or investigates or interrogates the things that we consider ourselves to be so true? And art does that in a real, real way. And I think what ends up happening, too, with design is that it ends up getting lumped in with technology. And so because of that, I mean, of course, there's different types of design, but I I would wager you talk to most people about design and they're thinking Photoshop or, you know, a website or a logo or something like that. But even then, sort of lumping in design and technology in that way means that the work that we create ends up being very ephemeral. Like it's gone in 18 months or three years or whenever. And sort of like what you're saying to art's capacity to be a vehicle for archiving, I think is really something that a lot of people don't necessarily get. I'm thinking just recently about when uh, Kehinde Wiley and Amy Sherald's paintings were revealed for the National Portrait Gallery of, of Michelle and Barack and how quickly people turned around and tried to like, quote unquote, improve the paintings. Like, so Amy Sherald's piece, the, the, um, with, uh, Michelle Obama, she has like this big kind of like a, a patchwork kind of dress, right? But Amy Sherald's work tends to be very, uh, not, not very muted. She uses colors, but skin tones tend to be kind of muted. And I remember when it came out, I'd say not even the same day, but probably about the same week or so, I was seeing people who had quote unquote improved it by darkening the skin or changing the colors of the dress and then like turning it around and selling it as a t-shirt or something like that, you know, like, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. I <laughs> like makes me so uncomfortable because then that gets into conversations about like whose aesthetic and voice should be prioritized and privileged. It also yeah. gets into conversations about the commodification of someone's own voice and identity you know, and how that is being exploited. Wow. I didn't actually, I, I didn't see any of that. I didn't see any of that. And, and I should uh, mention, this was largely by, by other black people of doing this yeah. of a black artist. It was really this weird. Is, that's so weird. And then there's probably like a misunderstanding about 
where Amy Sherald's work is coming from, you know, like, mm-hmm. did anyone actually like Google why is Amy Sherald's paintings like this? You know, like you can definitely Google an interview and hear her talk about that. And right. then suddenly that and that and that's so important. That's really interesting. Well, well, yeah, people were just like, nope, don't like it. She should, be, you know, why, how come her skin is so ashy? Let me change it so it's brown. And why is these colors this way? Let me change that. Now let me put it on a T-shirt on Teespring and sell it for $20. Like, it was it, it was really weird how that whole... I didn't see it so much around Barack's portrait by Kehinde because I think that people might have been more exposed to Kehinde's work through, like, Empire or, exactly. you know, through other, you know, vehicles. But it was astonishing how quickly I saw people trying to fix... I'm using air quotes here, like trying to fix Amy Sherald's work. It That's was, so crazy. Yeah. It was so crazy. I would be so mad if someone like... <laughs> I would love to get her on the show to talk about it. I really... You should totally write... You should just write her. And be like, hey, you, you know, we mentioned you. And I was just curious if you wanted to have a space to respond to some things that we talked about. I feel like she's pretty accessible. Um, I'll do that. I'm going to try to reach out to her. Yeah, that's super fun. Because Amy Sherald's actually from Columbus. Okay. In Columbus, Georgia, where I went to high school. I'm pretty sure. And so she, I just had a commission at the Columbus Museum in my hometown where I did a hair painting performance, hair painting number 29. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that I did a hair painting at home, and which was kind of crazy. Because the only person, I've obviously been sending videos and pictures and websites and stuff like that to my family, but yeah. I had never... The only person that's really like come up to see it was my mom, you know? And so going home and having like all of my family there and plus like 200 other people from the community there mm-hmm. to witness this work was really cool. But what's also really cool is that Amy Cheryl has a piece in the, in the Columbus Museum. And so now <laughs> we both have pieces in the Columbus Museum's permanent, permanent collection. And I just thought that was so cool. And I was just like, wow. This is amazing, like, being a part of that history, being a part of that legacy, being a part of that community, and being able to share that, I think is so cool. Do you get a chance to go back home often? I try to make it back at least twice a year. This, I think this year I've already been back three times, and then I'll go back, I'll be home probably a couple of weeks in December. I'm definitely trying to prioritize going home more. Yeah, because it was—it's just so easy to like be like running around the world and and be like and just call, you know, and just call and call and call. But that's not the same thing. And I'm getting older. My mom is getting older. My cousins are having children, mm-hmm. and I want to be a part of that. I want to be there. Like my cousin Kimberly, has amazing, cute little like I think he's like three years old. His name is Nazir, and I am just so. And he came to my performance, and he like was like oh my God, I want to paint with my hair. And he was like doing it and singing the song. You know, and that's so cool and important. Yeah, and I'm yeah. just so happy that like, I'm just there and I get to watch him grow up. And I, because Kimberly is my first cousin and we're about the same age. I think that she may be like, only like three or four months older than me, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of amazing. And so, yeah, as I, and yeah, as I've gotten older, I think that I'm realizing the more how important it is for me actually to show up versus yeah. just do the phone call. You know, even if I call everyone once a week, you know, but it's still just not the same. I know what you mean. Yeah, it, I know it's not the same for for me. Even if I call my mom or my grandmother once a week, it's not enough. I, I don't think my mom would be pleased until I just moved back home, period. <laughs> like, just pulled up roots and just went back and just stayed there. Because m- most of my, like, close family is in, is in Selma. And... It's funny you mentioned that about, you know, you going back home and, and your uh, your mom in the community kind of getting to see you work. I don't think anyone from Selma has actually seen, like, I want to say see what I do, but, like, I don't know if they've heard the show. I know my mom has heard the show, but, like, my mom hasn't seen me speak or she hasn't seen me give a workshop or anything like that. So she knows the stuff that I do because I tell her about it, but she hasn't, like, seen me, like, in action, so to speak in that kind of way. And I, and I know what you mean. Like, you know, your folks get older, you're, you want to be there for those memories, you know, you want to make those memories and it can be hard to balance doing that as well as kind of supporting yourself and your own career and artwork and everything. It's hard to, it's hard to balance that sometimes. It is, it is hard to balance it, but you know, 
like my mom says, you do one thing at a time and then you make a list and then you just make sure you like how about the time, you know? And that's what I'm trying to do is like, you know, cause it's like, okay, cool. All right. I know December 15th, I'm going to be in Alabama. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, cool. And I'm going to be there until after Christmas. Great. I mean, yeah, I can go to New York city for new year and that's cute. New York will always be there, but I want to make sure, you know, it is yeah. tricky though. It's very tricky. It's very tricky. And it's interesting because growing up, like, for example, John always knew that he was going to be in New York since mm-hmm. fourth grade, you know? And I think my parents, like, having prepared themselves for our exodus from the South, essentially, was something that they knew was going to happen. You know, they had prepared themselves mentally and almost even raised us to, to leave, to, to go away in order to, you know, have more opportunities. Like, I can't, I can't, there are certain things I can't do in the South that I'm that I got to do in New York City. And so it's important for me to be in New York City. Yeah, and everyone yeah. wants me to pursue the things that are my dreams and make those things happen. But it's like, but how do you find ways to like always go back? So me and my brother, actually, I'm really lucky. We have a, um, John and I are going to be doing a show in Columbus, a gallery, a, du- a duet show in April in Columbus, which is really cool because we had a, we had our first two-person show in New York City in Spring Break Art Fair. And I'm just excited to actually be putting up paintings in dialogue with John, like in our, at home, you mm-hmm. know, and like trying to keep finding those ways to keep sharing the work and keep engaging the community that has inspired it all. Yeah. You know? I would love it's to try cool. to find a way to do that in some sort of way, like go back to Selma. I've tried to, I've tried to reach out to my high school and be like, Hey, I would love to come and and just speak to a class or something like that, but I don't know, man. I had a rough <laughs> high school experience. <laughs> like, like I, like I see the yeah, yeah. Like, like I see the value of doing it because I want that generation to know. But then also, like a lot of my same teachers are still there, and you know, it's I, I don't know, man. I gotta find a way to do it because I do want to do it. I want to be able to show, you know, the community back home what I've done and what I've been able to do, and you know, inspire the community there, but then it's also just, I mean, I don't know. You're I mean, dealing with things in your closet, you know, you're dealing with like, like things and that's kind of intense too. Yeah. Cause like I tell people, whenever I go back home, it feels like I'm, I'm physically and like emotionally traveling back in time. Like the roads get worse. The buildings get worse. The, the cell phone signal fades out, you know, that kind of thing. And I mean, yeah. Selma is, is a dangerous town now. I know people know about the movie and they you know, they, they saw, you know, King walk across the bridge and all that shit. And that's great. But like Selma, like per capita is like one of the most dangerous cities in Alabama. And oh, so yeah. some, some of it is like, I'm kind of safer in Atlanta than I was if I went back home, even though back home is like this small Southern town, but like, it's, it's just a totally different, environment now like i go back to my grandmother's house and i'll hear gunshots and i mean i live in the hood in atlanta i I hear gunshots every now and then mostly around holidays you know special occasions but outside of that like it's it's a different kind of experience i try to find more ways to go back but then whenever i'm there i feel like i can't be there for too long and still be able to do the work that i do and my mom you know bless her heart she's like you know i'll just get the internet here and then you can work from home and i'm like it's not, it's not, it's not that. Yeah. Like it's not the same really, but thank you. I mean, it's good for her because now she's on the internet, but you know, like she, like I just got her on email like a few years ago. So like at least I can communicate with her more in those kind of ways, but it's yeah. yeah trying to find the time to, to balance between that. Cause I'm not that far. I'm just over in, in Georgia. I could just pop right on over, but like it's. How long does it take you to get from Atlanta to Selma? That's a good question. So I don't have a car. So I have to take the, the, there's a mega bus that goes from Atlanta to Montgomery. And that's about, hmm, I want to say it's like between three and five hours. I want to say it's like three hours. If it was Greyhound, it'd be like five hours because I have to stop at all these places, but it's like three hours. But then there's no real way to get from Montgomery to Selma unless one of them came and drove up and got me or something. You know, yeah, yeah. So I and, just, just getting there also is tricky. Yeah, and I mean, uh, getting there is very tricky. And because of that, like, nobody else in the family really comes home that often. Because like, they just they, can't get there. Yeah, because they live in big cities, and it's easier if they just, like, flew in somewhere. But, like, 
my uncle Levi, for example, lives in Dallas and he comes every year or so, but like he has to fly into Montgomery and then has to drive an hour to get to Selma, you know, like it's not super convenient. And that worries me, especially like if something were to happen, like how quickly could I get home? Probably not very quickly. Yeah, that's real. So I've been talking to them about that. Like, how do we kind of skirt this, this, <laughs> this issue? Like, I was like, do you want to move to Montgomery? Do we move to Atlanta? They don't want to move. They're not moving. They're like, no, we have been here. This is right. home. You're not moving us. <laughs> no, exactly. Like the, the house that my, my grandmother's house, like my grandfather built that house. They are oh, not wow. moving. They're not moving. So it's like, man, I gotta, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to, I'm working on it. It's a, it's a whole thing. I'm working. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to be airing my family shit out on here, but yeah, I'm working on it. (laughs) I'm working on it though. But, but like, that's the sort of thing where, you know, you kind of have to juggle your work and family and it can sometimes be something that can hold you back from trying to do the things that you really want to do. Cause you're like, Oh, I can't cause of this. And I don't know. I'm working on it. It's a, it's a struggle. I'm working on it. You mentioned your cousin or your cousin's kid, you know, him being so excited about seeing your work how do we sort of get the next generation excited about art you bring the art to them you know you have conversations with them about art you send them the text messages and the instagram images i feel like that is like the way to do it there and i mean with instagram like i feel like i feel like for me instagram is amazing i think it's like the only place the art you know all the artists are meeting each other on instagram instagram is starting to feel like a dating app sometimes that people (laughs) use it so much but literally just like DMing people and sending it over to them and being like, have you seen this? Do you know what mm-hmm. this is? I do that. I think also just like, I mean, obviously people are like, I love museums. I love art galleries. I think that there are, they are such important spaces. I think that obviously historically representation in these spaces has been off. It's trying to trick it to get like, you know, a seven year old excited about seeing a room full like, 17th century French oil paintings, you know, or like yeah. Dutch sailboats. Like, that's not going to do it. But how do you actually engage with them in work and understand, like, why this space is important? Like, why this space is for them? I think that museums these days, I know the Columbus Museum is working on that, particularly, like, with efforts, like, having me come down and actually, like, do the radio talks, do the TV talks, like, actually take time to do the meet and greets. Actually take time to call people. Actually take time to, to be really specific about who you point out to. To go into schools and talk to people. Like the museum is doing that stuff in order to get them there and give them a frame and context about what to expect and why this is a good resource for them. But I think that's part of it too. But you know, you know, we have to go to them. When yeah. I was in high school, I used to teach recorder to, I, I feel like at the time everyone was, they called it like, underserved communities like an underserved public school which i feel some type of way about that language at least but i get what they're saying but it was amazing i was like because i was like i'm a senior i was like i want to go hang out with like fifth grade black students and i want to talk to them about music and show them how excited i'm about music and also hear from them about what they are excited about you know and try to find ways to blend all those things together to connect because it really just takes one thing that can change someone's life and get them to rethink their relationship to art, to get them to rethink their relationship to an institution, to get them to rethink what they even care about, you know? Just the right person. You know who I think is doing it well? I think Kehinde Wiley's paintings do that work, you know? Okay. I yeah. think that his, I think he, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm just, well, this, ooh, anyway, I'm just trying to be cute. Um, I, <laughs> I feel like there's something there you wanted to say, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm gonna be but I think his paintings do that work because it really does. It tries to show people, real people in their quotidian environments, just like in a gallery. That's huge. Yeah. You know, and I can, John C. Edmonds, a photographer friend of mine who graduated from Yale, he does a series of works with about black men and do rags. Mm-hmm. You know, if so, if you bring that, to his classroom, you're like, so what is this? What are we looking at? I was like, oh, that's like, oh, is that my cousin in the Durax? Or it looks like my cousin. I don't really know. And you're like, it's actually this photographer. His name is John C. Edmonds. This is a picture of John C. Edmonds. And then suddenly you're engaging with them with, uh, it, with 
icons that they recognize is much yeah. easier once you get them to then push them to look at the French painting if they need to. If we even need to. Do we even need to? These are questions I have. I think that's interesting. But yeah, going to going to the schools, going to the community, going to you know, going to the churches. Like my mom did such a good job like telling everyone at my church about what was going on at the museum and actually was like, so are y'all coming? You know, like, do I need to pick you up? Mm-hmm. Should I pick you up? I'll, I'll take you. You know what I mean? I think that's important. What's the best advice that you've been given regarding what you do? Honestly, the thing that came to mind is let's fuck it up. Fuck it all up. Nothing matters. Okay. You know? And I think that's real because I feel like a lot of, I feel like artists, um, what did Erica Badu say? She was like, I'm an artist, you know, and I'm sensitive about my shit. Mm-hmm. Like, I get that. And I think that we are sensitive because it's our babies that we're constantly putting out in the world. But as an artist, and in order for me to continue to learn things about myself, to continue to learn things about what I, what I actually care about so that every day it gets more specific until the day that I die, I have to, like, it can't be precious. I have to be able to come into my studio and cut something if I need to. Cut it up and put mm-hmm. it back together. And that's literally, I spent this last week <laughs> at school doing that. I was like, this is just going to be the week that I come and mess up all my paintings and decide that, like, and make everything ugly. If I make everything ugly, then I know that it's ugly, you know, and I can't feel bad about it. But actually, the work that I'm doing is not ugly. And I'm actually learning things about what I care about and about my head and about the imagery that I'm trying to create and reproduce. And so that's really important. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I mean, you'll at this point be out of graduate school at RISD. What, what kind of work yeah. do you want to be doing? I want to probably be back in New York City. I want to really hopefully codify art at that time is moving into a larger, more institutional position in the industry. I think that I also want to be teaching. I love Cooper Union as a school. I want to teach there in painting and sculpture. I also want to be represented. I want to have a gallery space and I want to be, you know, directing and producing and curating and writing. It's kind of amazing. Like I really am simple and I really just want to do the same thing I've been doing. I just want to keep doing it and keep doing it better. And Mm -hmm. I want to keep impacting more people. And I want my reach to be larger in order to impact more people. And that's really what it is. I want to encourage people to rethink the ways that they're doing things. And when I see sort of like pedagogical or weird sort of institutional policies that seem unjust and equitable, I want to be in a position to change them, you know, and I want to actually have that power and I want to actually have that influence. All right. That sounds good. Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Definitely. So you can go to my website, which is www jarrettkey which is my name.com so that would be www.jarrettkey.com also you can follow me on instagram at jar.key all right sounds good well jared key i want to thank you so much for coming on the show i mean i think if, if there's anything that people can take away from this entire conversation aside from the fact that you have this this burning passion about your work is that you definitely have a story to share and you found the perfect media to do it with. And I say media plural because you're writing, you're painting, you're doing all these sorts of things. And I hope that folks will get inspired to not look at their journey into art or into design as a kind of a one way street sort of thing. There's many sorts of ways that you can learn to express yourself and and get your story out there. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yay, thank you so much for having me. I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jared Key and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jared and their work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people that they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. 
Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, then just pop on over to the homepage and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people like you and me. I mean, everyone from students just learning how to code to some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies use Glitch. And if you get stuck on anything, just raise your hand and someone from the community can come and help. Ready to get started? Then visit Glitch.com today. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Marius Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.